0: You know, when you go to the gas station, they have diesel as an option, right? I never could figure out diesel. The only thing I know about diesel, knew about diesel, was that trucks, the truck drivers take diesel. And I think it's cheaper. I've never given much thought to diesel beyond that. Did you know diesel is a person? Diesel. Uh, He was actually, there's a guy named Rudolph Diesel. He invented the diesel engine. Look, there's a new book. It's fabulous, it looks like to me. The Mysterious Case of Rudolph Diesel. Genius, Power, and Deception on the Eve of World War One, by Douglas Brunt, the best-selling author and the best author, Trophy Sun, one of my favorite books. Douglas Brunt, welcome to uh, the radio show. How are you?
1: Greg, it's great. It's great.
0: So fun to be here with you. Uh, congratulations on the book about diesel. I mean, you heard what I say. I don't think anybody out there, very few people know that there's a diesel person.
1: Yeah, you know, when you get into the book, you learn the reason why the history of the man has been paved over. And some of the reviews have called it the greatest caper of the 20th century. So there is a whole mystery and investigation that unfolds in the book.
0: Well, the uh, reviews are very, very positive. People are liking this book. They're praising your, your writing of it. Um, what is diesel? First of all, just before we get into the book, what is, what is diesel as we understand it today?
1: That that's actually a great way to get into it because it's how I got into the story myself. I bought this old boat about eight years ago, and I was going to fix it up. It was a larger boat, and it needed some work. And I was talking to the guy in the boat, you know, what should I do for this boat? And he said, well, you know, a boat like this, you ought to repower it to diesels. And I am like probably most of your listeners, didn't know there was any difference. I I thought of it as like, well, it's a different fuel, but maybe, you know, for same engines. I didn't realize it was a whole different thing. And he launched into this reason that 100% of boat fires come from gasoline engines. Zero from diesel. The fuel is stable. You can drop a lit match into a barrel of diesel fuel. Nothing will happen. It's not flammable. You get four times the range. On my 200-gallon tank, I'll be able to go four times as far. And so for all these reasons, I repowered it to diesel. And then a couple years later, was zinging around the Internet looking for ideas for the next novel. As you know, I've written fiction in the past. This is nonfiction. And I came across this list of mysterious disappearances at sea about Rudolph Diesel disappearing from the world in 1913. And it's hard for people to imagine Because we don't really know the name. It's been scrubbed from history. But in 1913, he was a huge celebrity. It was like Elon Musk disappearing today. That is so wild. Rudolf Diesel. Hey, by the way, it doesn't explode. It doesn't explode. It explodes only under high pressure. So it doesn't light with a match. It doesn't use spark ignition the way that gasoline engines do, which is why it was safer. It became the only option for submarines and U-boats back in in 1913, which is why he was such uh, so in demand at the time of this, you know, militarism and nationalism and naval arms races.
0: It's wild. We've heard of Thomas Edison, Alexander Graham Bell, not Rudolf Diesel. All right,
1: so where does he come from? Well, his Germanic origins, but his parents emigrated from Germany to Paris in 1850. He was born in Paris in 1858, spent the first 12 years of his life there. And, uh, I mean, I guess he was a whiz kid or something like that? He kind of was a whiz kid. He was recognized as having an exceptional brain. But in 1870, when he was 12, the Franco-Prussian War broke out. So anyone of Germanic descent living in Paris was kicked out. So there are riots and looting and mobs in the streets. He and his family run penniless from Paris. His dad was a bookbinder, basically worked with leather goods and things. So they flee Paris penniless. Their refugees go to London, which is right you know, in 1870, it's in the guts of the Industrial Revolution. They actually moved to the neighborhood in London where the setting of Oliver Twist's is. So and he arrives at the at the same age as the title character. So he's the age of Oliver Twist and Dickens's, you know, smoke and factories and terrible tenement housing living there for nine months in London.
0: So, uh, yeah, that was like slums and horror shows and uh, yeah. just a bad scene. All right, so he goes to school. How does he get around to uh, developing this this, this engine?
1: gets a lifeline from a distant relative to go study in Augsburg, Germany, which is really the hotbed of the, you know, the Industrial Revolution kind of started in France and England, but Germany, after the Franco-Prussian War through the later parts of the 19th century, becomes a real industry hotbed. And he, you know, his big brain takes over. By, you know, the 1880s, he's inhabiting the revered circles of German engineers studies under Carl von Lind, who's a professor uh, and pioneer of refrigeration, and uh, by 1892 has his patent and is developing a prototype of the engine.
0: Now, quick timeout, um, where do you go to get all this information? I mean, um, the library? Were you spending a lot of time in the library, the actual library? How, do you, how, do, how did you do the research?
1: Well, you know, a lot of it can be what I would call library research. There are so many old newspapers and documents that have been scanned. And so you can go into these databases and do keyword searches. But there are incredible archives over in Germany, some in France, some in Great Britain, and some even here in the U.S. because the way the licensing scheme worked in that era is you would license the rights to market and manufacture the diesel engine by national territory. And the person who took the exclusive license for the diesel engine here in North America was Adolphus Busch, the founder of Anheuser-Busch. So he used the diesel engine to pump water in his breweries and power refrigeration, But he also had a separate business that was building diesels for submarines for the U.S. Navy. So the the cast of characters in the book is insane. It's this crazy Gilded Age-era story. When you're
0: researching, does it ever get lonely?
1: Yes, except I love it. You You find little nuggets of information that, outside the context of the story, would be meaningless. Someone would just pass right by it. But knowing the diesel story, and I know more about Rudolph Diesel now, I would say, than anyone on the planet, You'd find some documents saying, you know, Diesel said this two days before Winston Churchill said that. And, and Churchill has a huge role in the story. Uh, and it's gold. You know, it's like the nerd side of Indiana Jones. You know, it's not the whip and the rolling boulders and things like that. It's like the geeky academic side of Indiana Jones where you find stuff that's just treasure. Hold on.
0: Where is what is diesel gas? What is the diesel? What is what what substance is that stuff?
1: Well that that is a great question because today it born it burns petro diesel, just another form distilled out of crude oil and petroleum. Um but his initial vision was that it could burn a range of fuels. It could burn vegetable oil, nut oil, it could burn coal tar. He won the nineteen hundred Paris World's Fair on a diesel engine running nut oil. And that was his idea that he could defeat the the American fuel monopolies. And so Diesel, on September 29, 1913, he was traveling from Belgium to Great Britain on an overnight passenger ferry, one of those old steam ship passenger ferries, and in the night he disappears. He had had dinner with his friends, allegedly. In the morning, they were to meet for breakfast. They go to have breakfast in the morning before they disembark in Great Britain, and he's gone. All they find is his hat and his coat folded at the stern of his ship by the rail, seeming to mark where he left. Uh, you know jumped overboard so people thought suicide but newspaper headlines around the world like I said he was the Elon Musk of the time so front page of the New York Times front page of the papers in Western Europe and Russia are all about the disappearance and two theories of murder emerged one that he was murdered either by Kaiser Wilhelm the emperor of Germany or that he was murdered by John Rockefeller because he, he represented and we can get into the motivations of why but he represented an existential threat to both.
0: Uh, all right. First off, was he? Was there anything going on in his personal life? And let's talk about him as a person. Rudolph Diesel. Was he married? Did he like to gamble? Uh, you know, did he have any? What were his hobbies?
1: Well, you know, in those days, engineers felt an obligation to be both engineer and social theorist to explore how their innovations could be applied to society for the betterment of society. So he was, in general, a. a Peaceful guy, though he recognized a strong military was important for the defense of a nation because his life really was bookended by European wars. You know, he, he disappeared just on the eve of World War One, And uh, it was a time of social Darwinism where people felt that he, – he did not feel this way, but social Darwinists felt that it was not only – okay to invade a weaker neighbor it was a moral obligation to do so that society should advance in the way that biology has advanced that it's survival of the fittest so if you're stronger than those guys you should go invade them and take them over and make them more like you so he, he did not believe that it was more peaceful um, he had french english german slavic background so he considered himself more of a citizen of the world you know which was a counter to this highly nationalistic period in history um and he was a romantic. He was kind of a poet. You know, his, his mother was a governess who taught him a love of music and culture and the arts. And his letters to his wife are really charming. You really get to know. He, he leaps off the page as this three dimensional figure that you kind of fall in love with. But he, he was married with three children, good family man, very hard worker. Um, but also a capitalist. And he, he wanted to make a buck off this invention too. And you got to read his. Personal letters, love letters. I read his love letters. I Talks mean, about French lingerie in there. Whoa! Uh,
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, someday they'll be reading our text messages, I guess. So, all right, he makes this incredible engine. Um, it It's, uh, you know, there's a demand for it. Rockefeller, I presume, is threatened by this.
1: Yes, Rockefeller was at a very precarious time in the early 1900s because Standard Oil was founded in 1870, and by 1900, Rockefeller was the richest man in the world. He'd made all his money off kerosene for illumination. He was in the lighting business in the first 30 years and what made him the richest man in the world. Gasoline was a wasteful byproduct that was a nuisance that they would throw away. In 1905, it was not settled that the 20th century would be dominated by petroleum and gasoline. And in fact, in 1905, in New York City, there was a taxi fleet of hundreds of cars that were all electric cars and there was a charging station on Broadway in Times Square. So now we think of Elon Musk creating these newfangled electric cars. Well, no, that was going on 120 years ago huh. and diesel. So, so Rockefeller's trying to find as kerosene gets wiped out by the electric light bulb at the turn of the century. So, you know, Standard Oil had wiped out the whaling industry and using whale blubber for illumination. Then we use kerosene, but now the electric light bulb is here by 1900 and Standard Oil needs a new market. They need the combustion engine. But diesel represents an engine that doesn't need petroleum or gasoline. He's saying we can use vegetable oil. And to this day, diesel can do that. Willie Nelson, 15 years ago, was driving around on his tour in a diesel-powered tour bus running on recycled kitchen grease, basically vegetable oil. And he's saying we don't need to run around fighting wars for petroleum out of, you know, places in the world that have it, we can grow our own fuel, which is what Diesel was saying 120 years ago.
0: So the competitive uh, forces that were working against him
1: back then, are they still working against the diesel industry today in some form? Well, in some form, yeah. I because, you know, the infrastructure required to grow enough corn or nuts or whatever you're going to use to to then refine into an oil would be huge and gasoline and and petroleum are are offered in a way that makes that business case very tough to make. And so, as an example, back in the kerosene era of the Standard Oil history, Rockefeller went into China and he gave away all these kerosene lamps, these fancy new kerosene lamps for free. Because in China they had traditionally been using gas, natural gas or oils for illumination. And he says, "Here's this free beautiful new kerosene lamp and then here's some really inexpensive kerosene to light it with." And so everyone starts using kerosene lamps. Well, they once he's got China addicted to it. The price goes up. You know, he's he's got his uh, his market held captive. And so he use those same kind of manipulations by controlling the supply so much he can influence the form of demand.
0: Well, you know what I like also? The book has pictures. All right. <laughs> Not all books have pictures. We can see what he looks like. We can see what life was like during that era. Um let's just time out for a moment. Reading a book, just sitting down and reading a book, I think we're doing less and less of that, but I think it's yeah. also more and more important my eyes are going crazy with the screens. Do you agree? I think it's like, it's so imperative that people read more, discover what a book is like. And it's not for the elites. It's for everybody. Anybody yeah. who can read can read a book. Uh Does that resonate with you? I
1: just feel like it's One, such a, yeah, 100%. Uh, I would say, you know, as a, as a quick addition, I like read some good history too, because history is such a, a great perspective setter for the present day. Everyone's sort of you can get hysterical, saying, oh, my gosh, it's never been worse. It's like, actually, you know, there are times when it has been worse. Yeah. And so history is a good perspective setter. But I also agree with just reading books generally, fiction, nonfiction, whatever. And the best way to treat it is at least an hour. You know, you can't I, – I sometimes read it at night, too, and I, I make it through like a paragraph before I'm completely gone. But it, try to carve out an hour. I, I try to carve out three. That is really the best way to treat a book and really get into it and enjoy it. Audible's making a comeback too, you know, so that's that's also great. Audiobooks are, are also fine. I, I, I find there's no substitute for like holding the book. Um, but either is great. And try to do it, you know, for at least a chunk of time where you can really get into it, and get some momentum.
0: Yeah. You don't have to do three hours a day, but on a weekend, on vacation, yeah. or whatever. Uh your method for writing. We talked about the research, but when you when it's time to sit down
1: and write, um, how and where did you do that? Usually in the morning. My my Method for fiction and nonfiction is a little different. With fiction, I've written by hand on legal pads. But with nonfiction, I really need to have my stacks of research around me. I need to be in a certain place. Whereas fiction, I could do it on a train or a Uber or whatever. With nonfiction, I need to be at my desk. I've got all my research around me. I'm keying it in, usually right in the morning. Um, and, you know, I try to get through it. It's not like a full sprint to the finish line, but I try to get pretty far into it before I go back and get big feedback on it. You did the other ones on a legal pad? Just writing it out? Fiction, yeah. I I have an outline written by hand, and then my first draft is, I because I'm a terrible typist, I'm like a hunt and peck guy. I type with about three fingers per hand, and I'm very slow as a typist. So then once I've written it out, though, I do, and our friend, you know, Nelson DeMille is the same way. He writes with a pencil on legal pads. But I once I have it written out by hand, then I'll type it in. And that's actually a, a useful step, too, because then I can sort of, Comb the hair out a little bit as I type it in.
0: Doug Brunt, the name of the book is The Mysterious Case of Rudolf Diesel, Genius, Power, and Deception on the Eve of World War One."